Mike. Glad you could join me for some great seafood. Me too. Wait, why are you dressed in fishing gear? You said we were going out to catch great seafood, right? Yes, to Popeye's. Do you even know how to fish? No, I thought you did. Oh, yeah, I could catch pretty good seafood at Popeye's. Let's go. Let Popeye's do the fishing while you enjoy our delicious signature seafood. Get Popeye's flounder fish sandwich or shrimp tackle box before they're gone. Limited time at participating U.S. restaurants. Hey, Billy, why don't we tell them what we're about, man? So we're here to welcome you to the Madhouse Chronicles. It's a talk show with myself, Billy Morrison. And me, Ozzy Osbourne. This man, Prince of Darkness. And we watch and react to the maddest internet clips. What do we discuss, Ozzy? Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, all that kind of shit. Drugs, rock and roll, aliens, and all that kinds of shit. Come and join Ozzy and myself. Visit OsborneMediaHouse.com to get special access to... Come to, on! What do you say? Do you think it's the wildest show on the internet oh. <laughs> hey welcome to this week's episode of zach on film joining me again this week is matthew peterson hey how's it going hey matthew and of course the ever wonderful steven schleicher hello hey steven so we're continuing to go into the movies yes this july <laughs> and we're jumping back into the 80s mm-hmm. this time with uh, their second film, Raising Arizona, yep. starring uh, everyone's favorite, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, Nicolas Cage. And Holly Hunter. Don't forget Holly Hunter. Yeah, of course, Holly Hunter. And, of course, yeah. a, uh, a longtime favorite um, uh, actor that we see in Coen Brothers films, John Goodman. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if William Forsyth has appeared in a lot of other Coen movies. I want to say yes, but maybe not. Uh, Francis McDormand uh, pops in there really quick, as does... Yeah. Um, uh, M- Emmett Walsh uh, pops in too. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot I of know, names. I um, know Forsyth was in Things to Do in Denver when you're dead. Is that a Coen Brothers movie? No, I don't think so. Okay, because he's one of those guys who's in everything from about 1985 to 1995, and then sort of disappears. Yeah, it is crazy thinking about that. This was 1987. Right. It's the second film and how they've already established, like, these are the people we're going to work with for the next two decades. <laughs> Steven and I were 16 years old. Yeah, in March of 87, yes. So you yeah. were old enough to see this movie in theaters because no, it's only PG-13. Didn't did you, see it did you? No. No, no, I, no we I, talked about it a lot. My friend Jeff and I talked a lot about it because he had seen it in the theater. And I don't know, um, he would have graduated. He was a year ahead of me. So by the time it would have come out on... VHS, mm-hmm. uh, he would have been long way to college. So I'd heard a lot about it, had not seen it until, oh, I don't know, probably junior year in college, maybe. So maybe That's, four years after the movie came out. Okay. When is, That's about the same time for me. I, I didn't see this movie until a girl that I was completely in love with, who later on married my roommate, uh, decided she wanted to see it and said it was the funniest thing ever. So I saw it on VHS in maybe 1990, 91, 92. It was in that same area. So Okay. Um, so Raising Arizona, starting Nicolas Cage, is a film about a <laughs> convict mm-hmm. who continually uh, robs convenience stores with an unloaded gun. Right. And uh, through his process of being booked repeatedly, falls in love with Ed, who is the lady in charge of taking... Everyone's photo as they enter prison, and Officer Edwina Hookett. As as he continues to be booked, I don't know four or five times in the kind of uh, prologue of this movie, 
we get a uh, a love sequence mm-hmm. that is rooted in prison. And right. eventually <laughs> when uh, High, who is Nicholas Cage's character, or mm-hmm. H.I., they call him High, is uh, released for what, the fourth time that we see, he walks right into the, the photo-taking room and says, Ed, something, I'm going to get down on my knee and marry you. And then they get married. Mm-hmm. And they start a happy life together until... It's not so happy anymore, Stephen. Yeah, it turns out that Ed um, can't have children. Mm-hmm. And so that causes a lot of stress in the marriage until the Arizona Quints are born. Five children born to uh, Nathan, Arizona, and his wife. And um, uh, Ed gets it in her mind that, well, they've got too many of the kids. Yeah. Why don't we just take one and we'll raise it as our own? Mm-hmm. And poor High is trying to lead a life of normalcy and trying mm-hmm. to get away from his his crime days, but as their relationship really starts to hit uh, some rocky ground as Ed is going through this, he starts to think, you know, I would drive by convenience stores for no reason late at night and wonder. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's got these urges that he wants to get back into his own old regular routine, but he's trying to do good, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he just can't. And so they go and they, and they kidnap one of the twin twin uh, quints uh, I, I believe they kidnapped uh, Nathan. Nathan Jr. Nathan Jr. He's the good one. <laughs> and then that leads into all sorts of troubles. Right. Yeah, because once they have this kid, Matthew, they realize, mm. well, now we have a kid. But some right. other people show up in High and Ed's uh, little house that makes it a problem for them to continue leaving their uh, somewhat wholesome lifestyle with this newly uh, abducted child. That is true. Nathan's former cellmates, Gail and Ethel, show up, and they have a plan that involves a man who can handle a gun. Well, they don't just show up. No, no, yeah, I was going to get to that. They, they, break, they break out of prison. Out yeah. of prison. And the first place they, they go to. Out of prison, in fact. Well, that was the crazy thing. I was watching this movie, and I'm like, this is Shawshank Redemption, you know, busting out of the thing. And I was like, well, wait, this movie was made when? So I jump, I'm like, okay, 87. When was Shawshank? I'm pretty sure it was early 90s. It was like five years later. I'm like, this is he, John Goodman's character. He's even like down on his knees mm-hmm. in the rain, covered mm-hmm. in crap. Right. Like, right, like celebrating. I'm like, this yeah. is Shawshank. This is so weird. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, Matthew, so they have an interesting plan that they're going to make enough money that they can retire. That's true. They're going to go and they're going to knock over a, uh, I believe it's the Farmers and Mechanics Bank. Yeah. And they're going to they're going to enter into a long wave of crime across the whole Southwest, uh, which reminded me of nothing so much as uh, Babyface Nelson in that other <laughs> brothers movie. But then they discover that maybe the baby isn't all that he seems as well. Absolutely, because uh, Nathan Arizona, the the rich man that he is, is offering a $25,000 reward mm-hmm. for, is it just information or just return to the uh, baby, return to the essentially? Baby, yeah. Return so, to the baby, yeah. no questions asked. And so a lot of people put two and two together and realize that, that High and, and uh, Ed have this kid, and one of their friends, his um, High's boss from work, <laughs> yeah. figures it Glenn. out. Glenn, yeah. yeah. Who's a terrible, terrible human being? Yeah, and uh, you would reckon you may not recognize his face, but you would certainly uh, recognize his his voice, Sam McMurray, uh, who mm-hmm. does a lot of voice work for The Simpsons. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so between, um, so Glenn actually says, you know what? Um, I'm not going to turn you in if you give me the baby because my wife wants another kid, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the easiest way to do it. 
<laughs> and so it's like, okay, they've got that going. They've got um, they've got our our good friends uh, Glenn and Evel, who Gail are, and Evel, Gail yeah. and Evel, who are wanting to rob stuff, and they basically are going to take the kid and turn it in for money. Yep. And then on top of that, you have a bounty hunter uh, played by Randall Tex Cobb, uh, uh, Leonard Smalls. Uh, and again, um, people may recognize Randall Cobb as the uh, goon in um, the Eddie Murphy yep. movie. Uh, not just slipped my mind. Um, the Golden Child. He plays one mm. of the one of the heavies for um, yeah. uh, Nottam really? Noomspa. Yeah, he plays pretty much a goon in every movie he's in. And so he kind of figures out where the kid is at, and he goes to Nathan Arizona and says, hey, I want this money, and I'll bring you back the kid. Mm -hmm. But he's going to... He's asking for double the money. Yeah, he's yeah. asking right. for a lot more of them. Because people will pay that much to have a baby. And yeah. I'll, I'll get the baby one way or the other, he says. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And That's so this leads to a, you know, a big heist and chase and all sorts of things. And in the process, um, uh, High and Ed you know, have a falling out in they the case where mm -hmm. Ed basically says, look, uh, what we've done is wrong. I'm an officer of the law. I shouldn't have done this. And uh, I don't love you anymore. Hi. We're done. Yeah. It's, especially because they're in a tight situation and High's like, well, well, because he loses his job. Right. Because right. His, his friend boss. Glenn uh, yes. had the idea of, you know, High's thinking, oh, I'm going to be a dad now. Where's the excitement in all of this life? You know, I was a criminal. And Glenn's like, hey, I think you think my wife's attractive, and I kind of think your wife's attractive. Well, maybe, you know, we could just both be swingers together. And then uh, Hi punches him square in the face. Right. Uh, Glenn fires him. And uh, and so they're out of this out of money. They don't have any, mm -hmm. you know, they have any money to come mm -hmm. in. So Hi's like, well, I got to go back to what I know. I'm going to go rob a convenience store. Yeah, <laughs> which I'll uh, take in, these huggies and whatever cash you have yeah. in the cash register. Which uh, right, that's what said Ed off, and she right, pulls right. out with the baby, which then led to one of the the best chase scenes. I think we've mm -hmm. watched the movie in a while. Yeah, there's a a couple of great chase scenes in this film, mm -hmm. which I was not expecting, but they were at both time at, at both times. Uh, Really well put together and exciting to watch, but also balanced the funny with it as well. Yeah. So it was great mm -hmm. to see some of that in this. Yeah. Uh, but eventually they kind of get back together. They have the baby, but not for long because then I believe his cellmates yeah, take they, the baby. Yeah, they take the baby because they're going to. They take the baby. Yeah, they take the something. baby from that. Yeah. And then uh, we have a big kind of final showdown at the end of the film mm -hmm. between those two and High and Ed and Smalls and then. Um, so remember last week when yeah. we were talking about um, when we were talking about um, the Hudsucker proxy and we yes. said that there's this battle between good and evil mm -hmm. in that film. Leonard Smalls represents the devil again, once again in this movie. I mean, he comes to High in a dream. He sees this thing escaping from hell and tracking him down. He has this premonition. Mm -hmm. And it plays out that Leonard is just a, he's a, he looks like a dirty, grubby biker. He he's wears grenades on his chest. He's got double-barreled shotguns. He's willing to uh, take people out. He, he'll be driving down the highway and just throw a grenade at a rabbit and blow it up. I mean, this is not a nice guy. And he has, in this movie, of everyone, if you if you look at those alignment charts that you play in Dungeons & Dragons, <laughs> sure. he is that chaotic evil character. Mm -hmm. He just is pure evil in this movie. 
And High is kind of, you know, he's a, I would say he's like, not lawful evil, Matthew, but, uh, you know, he's evil. He's, he's a bad guy, but not a bad, bad guy, because when he goes and robs, he never loads his gun up because then it would be armed robbery as opposed to just robbery. (laughs) So, you know, he's thinking about this and he's trying to do better and he's trying to do good. But in the end, it has to be good versus evil in, in fighting this. And it has to be high standing up to Mm. everything that he would have been. He's got to turn his back on this finally. And he does when he blows up Leonard by yanking out one of the, the pins from the grenades mm-hmm. and he blows up. And then they say, you know what, this, the, the way we need to do this is we, re, we need to return this kid to Nathan, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And, and they do. And it, and has a, a resolution there. But I just think that it's amazing doubt that in two movies, there is some personification of evil mm-hmm. that is clearly displayed on the screen mm-hmm. for the, the hero to, um, battle out with in the end well i know i'm just um matthew mentioned over the art thou without saying the name mm-hmm. earlier and that movie also has yep, the, devil the literal in devil well. in it mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah and so that smalls character is really interesting because as I was reflecting over the ending of this film right before we started the you know the, the movie ends after they give the baby and High kind of goes into this dream state again mm-hmm. that we got in the middle of the film when we are kind of introduced to the Smalls character of him looking forward into the future and seeing all these kids and grandkids and it's this couple and it's he says it's hit, uh, him and Ed. I don't think it says it's him and Ed, though. But I think he thinks it's him it's and implied Ed. Yeah, that's implied that it's him and right. Ed, right? And so that's what I'm thinking. What What is the whole state of this film? Because he says... He's prone to, you know, drift off from reality at times. And he literally did think there's no way he should know the Smalls character. Right. And then he has this dream and then this Smalls character is in this world now. So it it makes you wonder at what at what realm this film is kind of taking place. Because is it in reality or is it in High's head or that's kind of where I was left thinking at the end of this film. The ending is kind of weird because we know that. Ed can't have kids, but they've been told to sleep on it for a night. They, they're they going to split up at the end of this movie. But Nathan Arizona says, no, you guys spend one more night together and then decide in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he has this dream and it gets really weird because we know she can't have kids. And then he says something about uh, going to, to to Utah. So, well, the la- yeah, the last line is maybe it was Utah. He was he was dreaming about a, a place where good things can happen and mm-hmm. families are always good and parents are always wise and children are always healthy. But so I'm wondering though, is that an implication that he's just going to leave and go to Utah and start over without Ed? No, you don't think so. I don't, and the reason why is one word, four syllables. And we see it, and we've never really talked about it in depth in any of the Coen Brothers films so far. And that word is surrealism. Mm -hmm. It's most, to me, I think, obvious in Barton Fink, which we haven't seen and probably won't. No. But every one of the Coen Brothers movies that we've seen have some element of surreality to them, where things are are dreamlike. Ludicrous. They they, Mm -hmm. they come off as ludicrous in many instances. And by the way— by the way, before Matthew continues, Barton Fink has a little literal representation of the devil in it too, played by John Goodman. Oh, it does. 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's one of those things where you're just like, hey, these guys have themes. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the ending, I think you can read it either way because we see that High demonstrably has the ability to divine truth at certain points in the film. High sees what is coming to destroy his family and tries to act on it. And High sees when he's doing you know, in a less overt fashion, when he's doing what he's doing, he realizes that he's doing wrong. He mm -hmm. realizes he's in trouble and that bad things are going to happen. But he really can't help himself from holding up the convenience store anyway. And I think that that ending is one of those things where we can look at it and say, well, I prefer to believe that that's an example of him seeing something that can be and should be and will be for him and Ed. Yeah, a, a happy ending. Well, not necessarily a happy ending, but at least an ending that has some positive elements to it. And it gives you that, that, that O. Henry Rod Serling moment where you can go, I approve of this ending. Or you can look at it as just a big setup for that final joke, which is probably the funniest joke in the whole movie for me. Maybe it was Utah. Yeah. But I think that when you really break it down, when you have – you know, the literal embodiment of the devil riding around on a Honda motorcycle. And you have the moments in this film where get down and freeze. Well, which, which is it? You yeah. to get down or freeze? <laughs> no, I think that's the, that's, that's part of the thing that I like about the Coen brothers, especially when they um, do their comedies mm -hmm. is that there is a wonderful play on words where, mm -hmm. You know, one person will say something and it's like, well, what what meaning are you saying on this? Do you mean this or do you mean that? Mm -hmm. uh, I think That's, Matthew I runs. I think Dan. Matthew runs into that a lot on the Internet with his Internet troll followers where he'll say <laughs> something and then everyone will just pile on with, oh, did you mean this or did you mean this or did you mean this? And then Matthew gets super frustrated, just like John Goodman gets frustrated in, in this movie. So, it, well, when it, it you happens. say my troll friends, <laughs> no, I didn't say you, troll friends. I said your internet <laughs> trolls. <laughs> my internet trolls, Stephen. <laughs> Who is their leader, Stephen? Not me. I think it's uh, I think it's your friend Carl is the one uh, that usually oh, yeah, instigates it's it. It's definitely Carl. Yeah, I think he's the one that usually instigates it. Yeah, of so, course. Um. So yeah, I think there's I think there is that in there that makes the movies funny, especially mm -hmm. especially when you look at Oh Brother Where Art Thou, where mm -hmm. you've got George Clooney who is trying to use large words to make himself sound smart. He doesn't always mm -hmm. use them correctly, and mm -hmm. then it becomes even more funny mm -hmm. uh, because people are taking a different interpretation of what he's saying. So I they are very good at, at their wordplay in, in in their films. There are there are a lot of parallels between this movie and oh brother where art thou and i think the major difference for me aside from the fact that you know oh brother is really kind of a period piece but the similarities kind of break down to a point where we the audience don't necessarily take high seriously we don't look at nicholas cage and think this is a character that we take seriously as either a criminal threat or as, you know, a good father or whatever you look at. But you can't help but feel for him. Well, this is what we said last week with um, Hudsucker Proxy, where mm -hmm. the Coens like to, in their comedies, use the fool as their hero because the mm -hmm. audience will sympathize with them a lot more. Go and forever. So high is is the fool. Mm -hmm. um, the Hudsucker Proxy, a Tim Robbins character, is the fool. Um, uh, George Clooney is the fool in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And they I do that they, again they and again a, and again. They have a, a trifurcated fool 
in that Everett and Pete and Delmer are all basically different facets of a fool. Right, right, right. Kind of triumvirate. Right. But I mean, that's you're right in that they have this uh, foolish character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why we can sympathize with them more. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I, want to go back. I read a review from Roger Ebert, as I want to Mm -hmm. do before Mm -hmm. films when we're looking a while ago. And he reviewed the film back when it came out in 87. And, you know, this is a film that has a very high Rotten Tomato rating. Mm-hmm. Those are an aggregate of review scores. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting high remarks from Mr. Ebert, uh, but mm-hmm. not so. It was like a one and a half out of four stars. Mm-hmm. And he did not really like this movie. And I think it kind of hits on what did we're talking why? about. Yeah, the well, the one of the ones, if what we're kind of hitting on is this surrealism where one of his complaints was, it couldn't decide if it was reality or this kind of mm. extra reality type situation we were playing with. And he didn't really like that. And he also, he, he said he really hated the accents essentially. Mm. <laughs> what do you want to boil it down and to? Again, it? And that's another thing that you look at the Coen's comedies, yeah. especially. Yep. Um, they like to, and I don't want to say make fun of dialect, but they like to take dialect and yeah. stretch it out and to its extreme. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, they, they use that dialect as a tool, and sometimes it's it's a blunt instrument. Here, it's very much a blunt instrument, especially with Nicolas Cage hitting you over the head with the fact that the dialect means that this is a person who is not particularly bright. Well, even in Big Lebowski, uh, the Jesus is the same way, where that uh, accent, yeah. the dialect, is really mm-hmm. pushed to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to that's, where a, becomes, that's a huge example. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it was interesting because I was watching this film— and Aubrey came in. I actually think Ed was talking. And mm-hmm. she goes, why are they talking like that? <laughs> like, I just, it doesn't matter. Just go away. Roll with it. Roll with it. <laughs> yeah, but it is interesting, the more I've watched their films, how they do use accents in a way that, it's, like you're saying, it's, a, it's a push of the accent to a point where you have to accept it and it i guess it does kind of push it into that absurdist yeah reality that they're they're lit they're doing these films in because you look at fargo and um they're they're kind of pushed and then burton or uh hudsucker proxy not so mm-hmm. much accents there but in the cadence of speech that in the decade they were going with with the reporter and then the head yeah. editor of the newspaper where they were just talking super fast and really uh, staccato and everything. It was just crazy. And then you get yep. into Raising Arizona where everything is, I don't even, I don't even know what to describe it as. <laughs> Southwest. Well, it, is that what it, it is? It's not Southwest. South, it is, Southwest. Not, that is Alabama and, and <laughs> North Carolina in many of these voices. It is not necessarily as something you'd hear in the Southwest as, as a man who married a woman who grew up there. These, these are not things that you hear, but the thing about it is those accents, as, as they sound here, are, I don't even know how to describe it. They're, it. It's that thing where someone speaks in that manner, and your brain remembers all the people who speak in that manner. And you remember Goober from The Andy Griffith Show, and you remember Huckleberry Hound. And it's so iconic of an accent, it kind of helps to build the character without actually building the character. It becomes part of what you know about them. So knowing that it's not really a a realistic accent is not the point of, you know, hearing them talk, especially Mm -hmm. Holly Hunter, who 
I don't know what it is about Holly Hunter in this movie, but she's just adorable. Oh, she is in all of her movies. And she does have a bit of an accent in her speech yeah. anyway. So Yeah, because she... And so it, does Nicolas it sounds Cage. Like, yeah. I mean, neither one of them are pushing it too far past where they're at. Yeah. But... Um, I've never heard Holly Hunter talk outside of a film, but thinking of her character in Our Brother, Where Art Thou? She does yeah. have that kind of twang in her voice. It's mm-hmm. just not to the extreme that it is in Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. She's from Georgia, and her oh, okay. natural speaking voice does have that that Georgia drawl. Not like really, really drawly, but it's definitely there in anything she says. Mm-hmm. You can hear it in, in Andy McDowell's voice, too. You have that southern accent at play. And sometimes getting away from it is harder than, you know, building the character on it. Another thing that we've seen now in these uh, Coen Brothers films is an overall narration to it, which in Raising Arizona, we start out with, gosh, a, 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 the intro of, you know, five, ten minutes, where most of it is just <laughs> straight. minutes of, of narration. You have narration of credits. setting up the story. Right. Um, how do you think it was used in this film compared to the other ones? Because I think, Matthew, you might have had some complaints about narration. I can't remember if it was you or Rodrigo last I week. I think we, we both voiced issues about the narration in Hudsucker. Mm-hmm. The narration here is a, a little bit of a different matter because it's, well, I don't want to say first person, but it's one of the characters in the film telling us of what happened to him to bring him to this point. And even though it's not necessarily told in the past tense Mm -hmm. it's as though he's an omniscient narrator of his own life i can kind of accept that a little bit more than having like the the voiceover of sam elliott as wonderful as it is in in, uh, lebowski where that character seems to be aware of what's going to happen that character is like omniscient as though he were writing the story whereas here it feels more like hi telling us these are the things that happened to me and brought me to where I am. And her, her insides are a rocky place where my seed cannot, you know, just mm-hmm. so well, lyrical. And well, that's the other thing that's nice about, about these is when we look at um, George Clooney's character in Over the Where Art Thou, he uses the big words and he comes off like a fool. Here, High mm-hmm. uses the words and it's like, wow, this person is really eloquent in, in what he's thinking inside of his mind. <laughs> right. Yet when he... When he speaks, he's not mm-hmm. right, and I find that I find that also an additional layer of hysterics, which tells us yeah. a little bit more about the character, right? Because if you're telling your story, you right. want to come off as the brilliant person, right? Um, and I, I I wonder because we're getting his story, telling the audience mm-hmm. here's what happened. If he's not using that as an embellishment to make himself better than everyone else. To some degree, but I think there's also the the thing of when you look at a character like High, he is rough-edged, but he has a weird wisdom about him, and he has an intellect that you can definitely see in the things that he does. He's as dumb as a bag of hammers, but he has an understanding of certain things, and he has a level of of, of wisdom, if not sophistication, in the way that he deals with the things around him. And some of it, I think, falls down to that, you know, the, the homespun, well, old Br'er Rabbit knew he had himself a hard time. But it's also something where it, it works for me because it's it's high in his head. And the voice in your head, you know, we, we mentioned this briefly. When I listen to myself on the show, I don't sound the way I do in my head. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that thing where Ted Mosby sounded like Bob Saget for nine seasons, because what we're hearing is the narration in his head, and he's got time to think through it and make it sound really good and awesome. But when he's speaking in real life, it, it becomes clear that he's not an extemporaneous speaker. And also, you know, we we see a little bit of maybe supernatural ability that he has so we're we're definitely not looking as just your your garden variety yokel when it comes to hi mm-hmm. now steven last week you mentioned in raising arizona features uh-huh. one of your was it favorite songs favorite or songs favorite songs period yeah it's it's one of my favorite songs that's the um way out there song mm-hmm. um and it's and then it's expanded upon in uh, the big chase sequence where he robs the store and then then they're on the run. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting because it, here's the thing. I, I think the music is good. It is uh, scored by Carter Bur- Burwell. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to his website and he talks about this, he was like, oh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I just sat down with a banjo and this guy who y- yodeled and we just kind of knocked this out. Right. Yeah. Implying in the way he's telling it is that this is my all original work. If you go onto um, the Wikipedia, it says themes are borrowed from Goofing Off Suite by Pete mm-hmm. Seeger in 1955. Uh, that's great. But if you go back to like 1922 or something like that, maybe mm-hmm. even earlier, uh, there's a, a Western band called Sons of the Pioneers. And they have a song called Way Out There, which you listen to it and it is the opening half. The, the first half of their song is mm. the is this main title sequence that they have in here. And I've never seen anyone say oh, this is Sons of the Pioneers. Really? Yeah, it's really interesting. You can go, I'll put a, uh, I'll put a link um, in the uh, show notes or I'll actually embed the YouTube video, but you can find Sons of the Pioneer okay. and um, way out there and you will be able to hear the song and say, oh yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what this is. So either Pete Seeger is also borrowing bits and pieces from this, but you know, if, if you listen to that song and it's wonderful, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to tear anyone down. I'm just trying to find out where is the actual source of this song because mm-hmm. it's not what everyone says it is. I mean, there's truths well, and half-truths that are out there. It's folk music, too. I mean, folk music has a tendency to be, you know, kind of the equivalent of a story told a hundred times. You hear it, Holly Hunter actually sings an old folk song to the baby in this movie. You hear variations and takes on those things and different lyrics to the exact same song or the, the same song with an entirely different ending because that those songs evolve and they change as they go. So I wouldn't be surprised if you trace it back to 1933 and find that the Sons of the Pioneers got it from a group in 1874. But they may have. I mean, uh, <laughs> the interesting thing about Sons of the Pioneers um, was that um, Roy Rogers was a member of that group before oh. he went on to go do his thing. But um, I, I don't know. You guys, you guys may be able to hear it here. But like I said, I'll embed it. Give it a second here and then I'll. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's. That is. uh, That's it. That's the song. (laughs) Yep. And then it goes into uh, the the, the song. So I don't know if yodeling cowboy stuff, and really when it comes to Western music, I like yodeling cowboy stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the weird part. I hate most other Western (laughs) country and Western music, but yodeling cowboy stuff I really get a kick out of. But I have not done enough research into the yodeling cowboy uh, Mm subgenre to find out if that is a very typical intro that you would find. I'm going to say yodeling cowboy. 
Yeah. Well, there's a point where um, uh, part of the Pete Seeger song that shows up that goes da da mm-hmm. da da. Yeah. I've heard that like a hundred times, and there's yeah. actually there's a point on one of the Monkees albums where Peter Tork of all people starts whistling it and playing the banjo. And I have that chunk of song that sticks in my head literally for months and months at a time. So thanks, Zach. You're welcome. I'm going to be whistling that until at least Halloween. Oh no, I love I love that song. I, I when I jog or when I'm walking or riding my bike, I'll often have that <laughs> run through my head. Well, uh, I don't walk or ride anything. Well, maybe you should. Um, they also include, you know, there's bits of uh, Beethoven in there. Um, mm-hmm. Russian folk music is in there too. It's just it's a nice mix and how it's mixed together. And again, I'm not trying to downgrade anything that Carter Burwell or Pete Seeger or whoever, um, Beethoven, you know, put all this together because in the way that it's mixed and today we would call this what a mashup or something, right? Mm -hmm. They're just Uh, sampling. Yeah. Sampling or a mashup or, you know, throwing all these things together. It works really, really well. Mm -hmm. And it, it creates one of the most memorable moments in the movie is this big chase from the time he walks into the uh, store to rob it to the point where they go and get huggies and, and uh, conclude the chase some five, six minutes later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That that chase scene has to be kind of the best bit of this film for me in that it typifies just kind of this crazy, over-the-top chase scene, and it includes this great soundtrack, but and it's funny, and then it has cinematography that I was really impressed with in this film because you're you're looking in and not that they ever have bad cinematography in the coen brothers films but there are some shots in this 1987 film that you know they you would not be surprised at seeing in a 2016 action film where they are Mm -hmm. you know they are putting a camera right on the tire wheel essentially this wide shot and it's right there, and that's a. I mean, that's an easy shot to do now with right. a GoPro or a DSLR camera or right. a tiny little a, a film camera. It's going to be hard, but back then you're running these huge film cameras. That's not an easy shot to get. Okay, so let's talk about the evolution of that of one shot, especially the one where he's having the dream about busting into uh, the Arizona household and taking the kid. Right? Yeah. So this floating camera thing, a lot of ways you can do that. Steadicam yeah. is probably the easiest way to do it or to, you know, rig it like this. Oh, you're, you're talking about that shot. Yeah. Okay, or yeah. or even the even the shot on, on the tire stuff. Yeah. When you look at Evolution of Coen Brothers, what movie did we see Hudsucker Proxy last week? Yeah, Who me. was the co-writer of that film? Um, It was, uh, what's his uh, face? Bob Hudsucker. No, no. it was... Um, Sam, Sam Raimi. Raimi, right? Yes. Sam Raimi did what famous film, Zach? The Chainsaw Spider-Man. Guy. Or uh, is Spider-Man. Evil, Evil Dead. Evil Dead, uh, no, yeah. Come on, Spider-Man. Evil Dead. <laughs> yeah. In that, Spider-Man. Yeah, sure, I know he did, but if we're talking about famous films, let's talk about <laughs> Evil Dead. Evil so Dead. in Evil Dead, and the, you're looking at oh, God, people yeah, who are doing woods. low-budget productions, the, and he, he talks about this, is their um, cheap Steadicam was they would take their camera, strip it down to its bare minimum, connect it to a two by four, mm-hmm. two people would grab it, and then they just walk and do this really cool whippy swoopy move. So when we look at the fact that the Coens and Ramies are connected, Barry Sonnenfeld, who would go on to um, direct uh, Get Shorty and Men in Black is the cinematographer mm-hmm. on uh, Raising Arizona, you can still see the mentality of low-budget filmmaking in this and coming up with unique an- angles. Mm-hmm. And it, you, they probably didn't have a giant rig 
to mount on the car to get those to get a lot of those shots. Oh, so they're yeah, using no. their ingenuity and creativity, and I think a lot of that comes from this uh, uh, communication between small indie filmmakers doing this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think if you wanted to look at that and say, "Oh, this is really cool." Well, look at who they're connected with and who they're talking with, and let's see how ideas are being passed from one person to another to evolve this film narrative that we have mm-hmm. uh, in in visual storytelling. Yeah, I couldn't find in a quick search for the budget for raising. It says Arizona. six million dollars for the budget. It was shot in ten weeks. Oh wow! Yeah, that's really long. Uh, but it made thirty million dollars at the box office. Yeah, so, so it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, it's a it's a hit. Yeah, and so that's what I was wondering with because when you look at. That shot of him going to the yard mm-hmm. into the Arizona house. There's another one of him standing at the curb out in front of the convenience store after Ed drives away. Right. Of uh, where there is like this, this. I mean, it's, it's kind of it's a push into it. It's mm-hmm. a dolly, but you would mm-hmm. think it was a, a steady cam shot. But it does get a little wonky at the end. So you're either like a bad steady cam operator, or they just right. they didn't have, they couldn't afford to have a steady cam, right. which was my thought. Like this is a pretty low budget movie, right? You know they're not sh- showing a lot of uh, money into this, so they probably had some rigged type of system they were doing, especially with the shot of the lawn because that camera goes straight over like a fountain or something. Mm-hmm. So they would have had to have yeah, it would have been two on a, people. It would have been a- uh, two by four yeah. kind of setup, just like you'd see in, in Evil Dead. Now I'm seeing, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, if you have the DVD of this, there may be a making of uh, uh, attached to no, it. I, uh, I didn't look to see if the iTunes versions had any. I don't think it had anything. Oh, I just like rented that. it, so I didn't see. Well, I didn't see anything when I when I was watching it the other night. I don't yeah. remember seeing any making of because I really kind of had some time to watch that. Um, but apparently, in the making of, they talk a little bit more about mm. the development of some of these shots. Yeah, because that was, I mean, they're. Like those camera attached to tire type shots, mm-hmm. it, it straight into mind is um, Christopher Nolan uses shots like that all the time. There's the one that always sticks in my mind. Um, obviously, he didn't direct uh, Batman. What's the Batman Man of Steel? The one that everyone hates. Is that what it was? Man of Steel. Batman vs uh, Superman. Superman. No, no, no. The, the one before that. Oh, Man of Steel. Oh, Man, Man of that, Steel. That's- that's um, Zach, Zach Snyder, Zach Snyder. but uh, Christopher Nolan was executive mm-hmm. uh, producer on mm-hmm. that. And there's definitely some shots in that, like, oh, this is Nolan. There's the shot where the camera's, like, attached to the bus as it's right, falling off right. the bridge. Like, that right. is, like, a Nolan-type shot. I think he does some stuff like that in Inception. Mm-hmm. And so I was very surprised to see this, you know, two decades or more earlier uh, in Raising Arizona to see some of this cinematography was, mm-hmm. uh, was really great. Did you have anything... Particularly, you thought was well done, Matthew, when it comes to cinematography. I think the part that really sticks out to me is uh, when Smalls arrives in in the little town, and Holly Hunter grabs the baby and starts running, and we get a point of view shot chasing her, and then we cut back to him with his bike. So she runs into the bank, and then we cut to him smashing through the doors, mm-hmm. and then we see her run across the floor, and we see him smash through another door. I really like the fact that she's constantly in motion and you never see him in her shot. Right. But as soon as they cut, he's right there on top of her. Mm-hmm. And it feels really claustrophobic and awful. And it feels like he's somehow supernatural in his pursuit of her because she's running. He's clearly not there. And when she turns around, he is right on top of her. Yeah. Just like the devil. Devil's like the devil. Devil's gonna or a vampire. <sighs> you know. Back to the devil thing, it is interesting. In Hudsucker Proxy, we really had, you know, Hudsucker came down as this angel. I guess he didn't really fight the devil. It was the clock man and the mm-hmm. yep. window guy. Mm-hmm. Because in Most. this, 
it definitely feels like high. I think you mentioned this, Matthew is not or Stephen is not this like ultimate good. And no, it, he's it, not. It doesn't really feel like there is this ultimate good in if, Racing Arizona. If you had to say there was an ultimate good, it would probably be Nathan Arizona's wife. Okay. Uh, because I mean, she's in the film so little, but I mean, here she is giving birth to the kids. She says she got this motherly figure thing. She comes off as as very conservative and nice and loving or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she might be the ultimate good in the movie, contrasted with Smalls, who's the ultimate evil in the movie. Sure. I think the lack of a, a clear counterpart for the literal devil is one of the weaknesses of the film because. Even if you, you know, you know, if you look at it as Mrs. Arizona or if you look at it as maybe Ed as a counterbalancing positive force, Mrs. Arizona is really barely in the movie. Right. And Ed, Ed makes a lot of decisions that are somewhat questionable from a, a level of morality. Right. Well, and so, so then, you, then in that case, High would be – I mean, High is our hero in this case. And since he's the one that fights the devil at the end, mm. he's battling his – Literally, his, his own personal demons. Well, yeah. Right? And he, you know, it, it, there's a point where he discovers that they have the same tattoo. Which was mm-hmm. odd. Because it's, Which, it's, yeah. Because it was, it's not like it was exactly him because it was a different location, right? His was up on, like, Small's up on his collarbone. Yeah, but I mean, it's still the fact it's that still it's still the there. Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, again, they're, they're led to this whole brothers. weird thing. Yeah, well, are they brothers or are they, are they prison brothers, right? Is this right. one of the things that... And Leonard Smalls being the bounty hunter probably would not have been a prisoner, but it's one of these things where it's the final reaction for High to say, is this the path I'm going down? Mm. Is, this mm. the, is this the moment where I, I go ahead and continue to be evil mm-hmm. and go to jail and do these bad, horrible things? Or is this the moment where I'm going to change my life? And fortunately, you know, he pulls the, the grenade probably unintentionally. Um, but shows that good can win if he wants to walk that straight and narrow, which then is followed through in his dream sequence where he's having this very peaceful, happy life mm-hmm. surrounded by people that love him. Well, especially so for ultimate evil is actually high's potential for good. Or the fact that he makes that decision to go down the road of good. Mm. Especially because after that, they do give back the baby mm-hmm. knowing about the reward. I do right. believe. Well, they didn't or know about the, ro- or the reward at least because Nathan, Nathan comes in and says, do you guys want the reward? It. And they're like, what re- reward? Well, cause they kind of, did they agree to it at first? And then it's like, Oh no, we don't want the reward. Or they, no, they were just but like, look, like, we don't was, want he was it. trying yeah. to negotiate. We can yeah. give you store credit. I prefer. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which I thought that was one of my favorite jokes in the film. Where he's selling what unpainted furniture? So that's actually a big deal. I mean, that's Which actually is, a big thing. I mean, um, I've Kansas never heard City, about it. Well, it's, and it's probably not a big thing now because there's so much um, cheaper furniture that you can buy com- completed. But yeah. you know, growing up, uh, if you wanted to get some really nice furniture, like oak table, dining uh-huh. table, hutches, those kinds of things, uh, for me, there was a place in Kansas City called the Unvarnished Truth. And it was, the, it was this place. It was, you go in and they had all the furniture that you wanted, all the hardwood furniture, mm-hmm. but it wasn't finished because that's how they could give it to you at a cheaper price. You were then responsible <laughs> for going and staining you, it the color you wanted. You really, and it, and, and you, yeah, you, you turn it whatever it color. And so a lot of the furniture in, in, in my house growing up was from Unvarnished Truth. Whoa. And mom, mom's just really good at, at finishing things off. And um, would go to town on that stuff. So, so that was a real thing? You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I thought it was just a joke, and I thought it was hilarious. No, no. No, no. I mean, I think it is a joke, <laughs> but it's an actual real thing. I mean, I think they, they're using it's, it as a joke. 
it's a reference for yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's crazy. I never knew anything like that existed. Yeah, there you that's go. That's so cool. Well, it was it was the eighties. Things were different then. Well, in the seventies too. It I can think fly this would now. Be, it might. I don't know, but because you know, you go and uh, I, probably the closest thing would be IKEA, right? Where well, you go yeah. and you buy all the parts for the furniture that you want to make, and then you assemble it. Like this desk right here is a kitchen countertop and some legs. Oh, from is that IKEA. what it is? Yeah, it's a nice. kitchen countertop and legs from IKEA. I could get fifteen different kinds of legs from IKEA if yeah. I wanted to, but I can assemble it myself, right? And right. so. Yeah, I think you you have a lot of those kind of That's same true. things here, but the fact that you're using um, uh, MDF today brought the cost down tremendously right. to where stores like Unvarnished Truth. Well, why do we need a nice big oak dining table when we can just go to you know Schlock and uh, Co. and buy a, <laughs> a, a little MDF thing that we'll use for ten years and then buy a new one? Mm-hmm. Wow, learn something. There new you day. go. That's great. Uh, Let's see what else did I have written down for raising Arizona. You know. I don't know when Nicholas Cage started, but this has to be pretty early in his career, right? I Nicholas Cage was in Valley Girl in 1982. Yeah. Oh wow. So this is maybe four or five years. And I want to say that um, uh, Moonstruck this, came out in '87 as well. Yeah, this is the same year as Moonstruck, and I think the same year as Peggy Sue got married. Because he'd been in a couple of movies. I, I believe yeah, his first I mean, movie he was, was in, Valley Girl. Uh, Best of Times was his first movie. Oh, I never as heard Nicholas of that. Coppola. Then he was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He was one of the guys that takes off his shirt in the uh, uh, right. restaurant when they're going in. Oh, okay. Hey, man. He's one of the stars. <laughs> Little Nicky Coppola. Then, then he was in Valley Girl, Rumblefish, Racing with the Moon, The Cotton Club, oh, Birdie, wow. The Boy in Blue, Peggy Sue Got Married, Raising Arizona, and Moonstruck. Oh, my gosh. Peggy Sue Got yes. Married came out in 86. So, Yeah. Well, that's close. Yeah. And did he ever do a Coen Brothers film again, or was this his only one? Uh, mm-hmm. They had a lot of difficulty on set because I was wondering if that was a thing. Uh, according to reports, Nicolas Cage would come to the uh, set and have suggestions on things, oh, no. and the Coen Brothers would completely ignore him. And then later in interviews, he'd say, "Well, they're very set in this vision that they have." Mm-hmm. That he would mm-hmm. say in interviews. So I don't <laughs> know if he's worked on any other uh, Coen Brother movies, but I would guess, uh, considering his uh, his uh, most recent run of things, probably not. Yeah, wasn't wasn't Nicholas like he isn't he's like a heavy duty method actor though, isn't he? I don't know. Oh, I don't know about Cage. I mean, you I know, thought I, he was one of those guys who would like, yeah, who would like assume himself in the role to the point where he would only answer to, or maybe I'm yeah, thinking no, of I don't, Johnny Depp. You may be thinking of someone else because yeah. I don't think that that is uh, Nicholas Cage. Mm. Man, I wish it was though. That'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would certainly explain the Wicker Man. It is interesting when you find these directors who like to work over and over again with these actors, and mm-hmm. you feel like, "Well, that's a pretty famous actor. I don't think they ever worked again together." Like, I want something had to go wrong there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they did not. They did not work together. I'm looking through Nick's uh, Nicholas Cage's stuff. No, they did not work together. But if you look at the movies that Cage chooses to be in, you can kind of see why. He doesn't necessarily mesh with the Coens because if you look at the actors that work with them repeatedly, if you look at, you know, like your Francis McDormand and you look at your John Goodman, Goodman. these are actors who, when you see them in a role, you don't necessarily think of them as as like the the wild card, the the unpredictable character. And even when you have a character who's meant to be unpredictable in these movies, it feels very controlled. It feels like the director's really got a hand on what's going on. This doesn't feel like one of those, you know, Will Ferrell joints where everybody's improving mm-hmm. to the point where they have a different movie if they assemble different takes, you know. Right. 
I wonder if it's just one of those things where his style doesn't mesh with the Coen's directing. Yeah, it's Probably possible. Not. I was, you know, John Goodman pops up in this, and I thought, you know, if if we can nominate a fifth person or the fifth, I'm gonna sound stupid if that's not right. Another head on Mount Rushmore, right? <laughs> <laughs> like a popular vote. I feel like John Goodman deserves, if not like a head on Mount Rushmore, like five, like. Uh, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame or something because I love the him. Man's man. amazing. He is so good. Oh yeah. And you know what was interesting is we're watching this and Aubrey's there and John Goodman shows up and she goes, "Oh hey, it's that guy from Red State." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I I don't I think there's like a few other movies she's seen John yeah, Goodman yeah. in, but that's interesting. That was the first one that came to her mind. That's well, and the funny. weird thing about John Goodman is he's a very very specific presence. But he's such a chameleon in in weird ways where you're always like, oh, my God, it's John Goodman. And then you see him just acting in a completely different manner. Mm -hmm. What was the what was that Cloverfield movie? Ten Cloverfield Lane. Lane. He is in that. I'm not going to spoil it it because that's a oh, that's a good one. But throughout that movie, there is nothing in his performance that you can predict. Mm. And his character, when when you start to see what's going on and you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then it turns out it's not what it is. And then it turns out, oh, my God, it's something. Into-. But throughout the whole thing, he is rock solid in his interpretation of this character. Mm-hmm. But it's so subtle that the changes and a little bit of that is visible here, but you see it better in other Cohen movies. The changes in his interaction with the stuff can change the whole movie. Is and John? The, oh, continue. No, go ahead. I was going to say, is John Goodman in next week's film? No, no country he's, for old he's men. Not, I don't believe he uh, is. No. Uh, sad no. day. No. Uh, his most recent um, Coen Brothers collab was uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Oh, I still haven't seen that. Yeah, and then I was going back to see what all of the movies he has been in with with Coens. Um, and so before that, it may have been Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It may have been the 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 one. Oh, so really? he had like a three year gap. gap or twelve year gap. Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He was he was in Barton Fink. He was in Lebowski. He was in this. Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was oh he's he was in, in the Flintstones. Flintstones. He was in the what's the Flintstones say? A a no no. Hudsucker Proxy. What was he in that? He was in it briefly, I guess. He was the newsreel announcer. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what it was. Yeah. So next week we are. Oh, any final thoughts on this is a, raising Arizona? This is a good fun movie, and I I think I think it would have been interesting if Rodrigo could have been here tonight because it'd be interesting to see a take on this movie from two people who have no kids, yeah, right, that you know of, and then two positive. people two people that have kids because that we know of. this is a different. To me, this is a different film mm-hmm. when you view this after having kids. Oh, okay. Um, or going through an adoption process or whatever. Um, because I think there is this thing that you can really empathize with what is going on with Ed in this piece. Um, and and really kind of getting into the mindset of where she's coming from. Uh, and this desire to have a family from both High and Ed that I think is different from for people who have had kids as opposed to people who are like, they want kids. Why? I'm 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 25. I want to go smoke my cigarettes and grow my beard kind of thing stuff. Whatever. <laughs> grow my cigarettes. That's what I do. Beard, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I I, th- I think that would be an interesting perspective on, on the different sides. Mm, interesting. Matthew, do you have any thoughts on Raising Arizona as we finish up? I don't know. And, it, you know. We all take different things away from the movie. I didn't feel anything 
parentally because the movie is cartoonish enough that I never really thought of Nathan as a real baby. You know, it throughout this movie, the baby never cries and he never gets upset. And there's because he's movie, the good one. There's that <laughs> sequence that should be horrifying where Gail and Llewellyn are driving at him and stopping on a dime. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> that's terrible. You know, I, I didn't necessarily feel like that was something that stuck out to me. But the one thing about this movie that is great and terrible at the same time is this is early enough in their career that they still haven't necessarily learned where the line is. Because later Coen Brothers movies, you get a much more assured take on what is and isn't perfectly set up in their film. You know, we talk about, oh, brother, where art that? We talk about Lebowski, which is just a couple of years later. This movie feels like it's kind of out of control, but it's out of control in like a, a party at, you know, Leroy's house in 1992 kind of way, where you almost feel like that out of control is part of the draw of this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, you know, we talked about the weird non sequiturs that happened every once in a while mm -hmm. in Hudsucker Proxy, which mm -hmm. threw me for a loop and kind of put this crazy spin on that film. There wasn't any of that in this, which to me, it felt more controlled than Hudsucker or they were just kind of just putting stuff in yeah. there for, 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 for laughs and giggles. And considering that Hudsucker came after this yeah. and this one had such a high profit margin yeah. uh, as far as the money made, that they mm -hmm. may have been just given free reign to do whatever they want, and sure. that's what caused Hoodsucker Proxy to actually lose a crap ton of money. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was yeah. a huge money loss. Yeah. For the, for Go the be studios. wacky. You yeah. guys made that wacky movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this film is crazy. I mean, there is a you know, two or three minute sequence of a man pulling himself out of uh, crap and mud, and then, mm -hmm. and then deciding he's going to go back into that at the end of this film, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just, you know, just wacky do stuff like that. But it all felt... In sequence, it set itself up yeah. as crazy from the moment uh, uh, a man in prison fell in love with the woman taking his photo. Who he, I'm going to assume he only saw her about right. four times in right. his life, right. which was great. And so it set it up that moment from the very beginning. And so to me, it felt the craziness had a purpose. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like, just, oh, we're, we're going to show a, a man getting his pants hemmed for mm -hmm. four minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so I really enjoyed Raising Arizona. Um, I enjoyed it more than Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah, and, and I think most people. I mean, if you were to compare those two, I think most people would say this yeah. is a better movie than Hudsucker Proxy. And but I don't think it's better. I, I hmm, did you enjoy this more than Hail Caesar? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Hail Caesar was. But if you ask me, it's, just, it's so different. I think I'd right. want to watch Hail Caesar again, though. So it, do you like this this movie better than um, Big Lebowski? No. Yeah. So I, th yeah, I think I I, Lebowski. I, Lebowski is really high up there, and so is Raising Arizona. Yeah. Um, you know, and Oh Brother, We're Out There. That would probably oh, be gosh, my top yeah. three, you know, Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're all the comedies, right? Mm -hmm. I think we've already seen Fargo, which is... It's comedy-ish. Yeah, it's some but satire. It's, serious. With, it's a thriller, right? Yeah, yeah. And next week with No Country for Old Men, that's also another one that's thriller, that's dark, mm -hmm. right? So the Coens can either do really, really funny or they can do really, really dark, like Blood Simple, No Country for Old Men, Fargo. And um, I think you're going to be kind of surprised with No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I have heard a lot about 
this film we're talking about next week. Mm-hmm. And same with Miller's Crossing, the same way. Okay. What was the first one? Blood Simple. Blood Simple. That was, was their, their first, first film, movie, right? right? Yeah, I heard that one was kind of yeah intense. Yeah. And so. and I would say I would argue Matthew that even um, Barton Fink is also a dark. I don't find it very funny. It's just dark and disturbing. Ew. Barton Fink is definitely one of the least comedic of their films. Yeah, it's like dark and disturbing in a weird way, like hit, like literally head in a box. Yeah, yeah, kind of story. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. It's that's, like delve into the darkness kind of movie. And that's why, again, I'm interested and in, haven't seen Inside Lewin Davis yet because it doesn't look like a comedy. No, but it doesn't look violent. No, I think it's it's like a it's like a music film, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a mockumentary. So I'm weirdly interested about that one too. Yeah. Uh, so next week we're talking. I know Country for Old Men, yep. which I've heard there's a disturbing, this man uses like an air-powered like violence, rifle or something. Violence and mayhem ensue after a hunter stumbles upon a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash near the Rio Grande. Oh, there you go. That no sounds... Country for Old Men, 2007, directed by Ethan and Joel Cohn, written, Cohen, written by Joel Cohn and, uh, and Ethan and uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, that's Josh right. Brolin, Javier Bardem. Yeah. It's going to be good times. It's going to be good times. We're going to end up, end up going to the film. Or yep, movies, wrapping up the, the Cohen to the movies. Wrapping movie. it up. Yeah. And then we'll start a whole new something something in August. It'll yeah. be great. We'll see. Yeah, so that's it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. Thanks for being here, guys. Uh, while you're waiting for next week's episode to come out, head over to MajorSpoilers.com. It's Comic-Con week. Yeah. There's going to be just an absurd amount of news and trailers and all sorts of good stuff. So you're going to want to keep your eye on you know, the Twitter feed of Major Spoilers, Facebook, and just the site in general to get all of that good news that Steven reports on it in the best way possible uh, right from his own basement. It'll be great. Uh, <laughs> while you're on that site, click on the Amazon.com link because there's going to be uh, movies announced. You're probably going to start pre-ordering. Mm-hmm. Video games announced. You're going to start pre-ordering. Oh, just yeah. merge and everything. Including the just announced uh, Smash Up for PC, oh, Mac, and iOS uh, games. So. Oh, okay. Sweet. You can get that pre-order for Amazon.com, mm-hmm. but use that link at Major Spoilers. When you do that, a little bit of that money won't go to major uh, to Amazon's pockets, but it will come back to Major Spoilers so they can keep creating great content for you every day of the week, all year long. We really appreciate it when you guys use that link. Uh, but that's it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. We'll see you next week. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.